The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome to What's Working in Washington. Really happy to have you here this week. With this show, we're launching weekly columns. Our first column is going to be the Non-Billable Minute, brought to you by Andrew Sherman. Here in the studio, we're going to have a very important conversation about the First Amendment. It's something a lot of people talk about, but frankly, I don't think enough people really understand what it is and how it relates to business and the overall society we all live in. I have three guests here in the studio. Shan Wu is a former federal prosecutor whose law practice focuses on white-collar criminal and student offense matters. He's a partner with Wu, Grohoski, and Whipple, and he's tried over 25 cases to jury verdict. For that reason alone, we should just stop right now. You win. You're one of the few lawyers <laughs> I know that actually goes to trial. Sean, congratulations. Our second guest is Tom Clare. He's a partner at Clare Locke. He specializes in complex business disputes, high-profile reputation attacks, and print broadcast. And he's also ranked nationally for his expertise in our topic, First Amendment litigation. And Richard Levick, who is a regular uh, guest here on the show is, as you know, the chairman and CEO of Levick, a communications firm that works with businesses and government actors on crisis communications and broader strategies. Gentlemen, I can't think of a better reason to have you here today than let's help everybody unpack and let's begin with what is the First Amendment? Well, let's start with the text of it. Uh, the, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So cutting through all of that legal sounding stuff. This is the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, and it defines the rights of the people to express themselves, to have a free press, and it limits the government's ability to restrict freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of uh, expression more generally. For Americans, everybody talks about freedom of speech. Is that really, is this why the First Amendment is so critical? Sean, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about this here on college campuses. I know I teach a college campus. People talk about First Amendment all the time. Do they really understand what the heck they're talking about? I really don't think so. Mm. Uh, there's a huge debate on college campuses about the First Amendment and how it kind of intersects with this whole notion of safe spaces. And you would think on a college campus, and I hear this a lot with faculty members and administrations, I'm on the board of trustees at Sarah Lawrence College, there's a concern that there should be a free exchange of ideas, and therefore people should speak their minds, apply critical thinking to it. But there's also a counter current right now, which is there's a big concern that certain kinds of words may offend people, may trigger certain traumas. So they've tried to create this concept on campuses of a safe space where you're going to be sensitive to the words. So there's a big collision going on on the campuses, which is how can you be respectful of people's feelings and their experience as minorities, people of color, and at the same time, you want to foster the free exchange of ideas. So there's been a lot of collision there, a lot of adversarial positions being taken, so that's a big issue on the campuses. Now, it's interesting, Sean, thinking about what you just said and what Tom Clare said a minute ago. Tom, you framed the First Amendment. It's not, 
I should be free of you saying something that upsets me. It's I should be free of the government putting constraints in my ability to express my free speech, right? Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, that we look at the text of it, it starts, Congress shall make no law abridging those freedoms. And that's the way the First Amendment is framed. Uh, I think the way that people understand it, though, is different. It leads to right. these sorts of conflicts because people will invoke the First Amendment and their right to free speech to support all sorts of things um, that aren't necessarily really First Amendment issues. It's really just, I want to be able to say what I want, and I don't want you to be able to offend me with the things that you say. Richard, I'm going to bring you into the conversation because you spend your life helping businesses and countries express themselves often in ways that are going to upset people. How do you react as a business person when somebody says, well, I've got my First Amendment right to my opinion? Or what's how do you how do you manage the minefield of, quote, free speech? You know, I think it's a lot different now than it was before. One is we're traveling all over the world. So obviously the First Amendment only applies to these United States. But I think most people define in this country define the First Amendment as protecting whatever it is that I say, uh, but uh, not speech that I don't like. And that, I think, is an absolutely an opposite of the Jefferson ideal of the First Amendment, which is the marketplace of ideas. One of the concerns that we have right now is that the way in which Donald Trump acts is so intimidating to at least raise theoretically, if not legally, questions of prior restraint. Uh, it certainly feels uh, that the press, he's trying to intimidate the press from doing its job. He's trying to intimidate individuals at times from having uh, their communications. And although he tries to have it both ways, at once the president of the United States, but at the other time, simply tweeting on his own personal phone, it's, it, it raises, I think, questions of fear in this transparent age that we, most of us have not had to deal with since the McCarthy era. Well, let's let's expand that a little bit, because I, I, I think, and certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to have you in the studio is I'm, I'm pretty concerned that a president should be talking about exercise of restriction on private businesses like Facebook, Google, or, or others, their speech. I find that troubling, knowing what I know about the First Amendment. Sean, turning to you and the university example, from my experience teaching, that people who have right-wing ideology find often find campuses really hard places to be. I've, I've been told that they feel unwelcome. I've had to be very mindful of this. You talk about safe speech in, in the classroom. I find when I teach, I need to be mindful of being exclusive about, inclusive about all types of ideologies because otherwise they offend. It seems like it's just lots of people are feeling like they want to impose their way of thinking by using this First Amendment. I mean, where does freedom end? You know, is it end, does, does my right to say what I want end when I harm, if I punch you in the nose? What, what are the guideposts that we're supposed to be using in society? Yeah, I think that's a really hard um, question to answer, particularly on college campuses, but I can tell you that the feeling is that there is a conflation of safe spaces and hate speech and free speech. And that's the question that is really hard for me as a lawyer mm -hmm. to often answer. Because, for example, we have hate crimes. And actually, it's really interesting. When I was a prosecutor in D.C., they often did not like to charge anything as a hate crime, even when it was obviously a hate crime, because they were worried about having to prove the hate aspect of it in terms of the First Amendment constriction. So I think that's something I'd be curious as to you know your views as to where the line comes between the hate speech and the right to speech. 
Right. Uh, well, I, I think that's a really insightful point. And I think one of the, the things that we've seen in, in both legal circles and in the way people talk about it colloquially is this notion of a hate crime um, or hate speech. And I, I think, as just as you've said, historically, people were reluctant to attach that label or it was reserved for only the most extreme of, of things that had a clearly racial component to it. Now, I think the pendulum has swung uh, on college campuses and elsewhere, and just in the way we talk about things, as dramatically the other direction, where now everything is a hate crime. Everything is a hate speech if it's something that I don't agree with. Um, and that label has lost some of its meaning. And I actually think that that's a real detriment to our society because there ought to be some sort of a um, elevated classification of speech for things that truly are motivated by it. But, but it's become so overused now in our common parlance that I think it's lost its meaning. And especially in today's political arena, where we have a lot of overheated rhetoric that really doesn't apply to what's actually being said. You know, I wonder if some of it is, to be blunt, there's money to be made in outrage these days. And I think the media may have, speaking to somebody who's been in the media for years, I, a place where it's great to get clicks, it's great to get people to follow. I mean, are we basically falling in this trap where we're, we're fanning outrage and losing the ability to actually regulate our own society? We have books and media selling at uh, all-time highs. These are Stone Age media, which are at all-times high. Why? Because just like NASCAR wouldn't exist without the accidents, we'd call it traffic, the same is true <laughs> for challenges without adversaries. We are addicted to the battle of Donald Trump, whether we are Donald Trump supporters or Donald Trump opponents. It is the accident nature of it, the conflict. And we have now conflated California and Hollywood with Washington and politics as if entertainment and reality television are how one runs a powerful country. I don't disagree with any of that, but I don't really think that if we limit this issue just to Donald Trump, we're missing the point. Absolutely. The, the point is, I see it, is that you can't have freedom unless you understand what the freedom means. And right now, freedom, I think a lot of people has been, it's confused. Uh, Jonathan, uh, the First Amendment is not, is not a fickle mistress. Uh, the First Amendment is not outcome determinative. That is that we can no more oppose speech we don't like than only encourage speech that we do. And I think both the left and the right, whether we look at Donald Trump or we look at the Me Too movement that is often not interested in the accused being able to defend themselves and in fact call it harassing speech or hate speech, not necessarily always interested in due process or statute of limitations. And I know we'll probably be criticized for saying that, but the First Amendment is something that is, while not absolute, is supposed to be applied blindly as justice. When we come back after the break, I want to turn the attention, uh, all of our attention to the practicalities of this. You know, how can we create some sort of rules the road for all of us to function as business people within our society? Here with three great experts, Sean Wu, Tom Clare, and Richard Levick. We'll be right back after this break on What's Working in Washington. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. 
It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Headco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.headco.md. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is the leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. And we're back in What's Working in Washington. We're talking with three experts. Shan Wu, who is a partner at Wu, Grahoski and Whipple. Thomas Clare is a partner at Clare Lock. And Richard Levick, who's chairman and CEO of Levick. Gentlemen, before the break, I asked that we spend a little bit of time thinking about and communicating the rules of the road in this new world. Strikes me as we come back into the conversation, we're in a really interesting moment in time where so many of the channels that are being used for communication of speech are privately owned or publicly held for-profit businesses and not regulated by the Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission. There's no fairness doctrine, but yet they become almost utilities. Uh, Tom, I'll start with you. What's what's a Facebook or Google supposed to do in the current environment with respect to First Amendment and speech issues? Well, they're in a a tricky spot um, because there is, of course, all this public pressure on them to say, how can you allow this content on your site, whether it's, you know, hateful speech or whether it's uh, fake news or, uh, uh, you know, external interference with our elections. There's a lot of external pressure on them to be doing something. Um, on the other hand, they tout themselves as being these neutral platforms, as literally being the modern day equivalent of the town square, where people can come and exchange free ideas without regard to identity and having anonymous speech and a value of all of those things. And Congress has actually given those private companies immunity from defamation liability because they purport to be the town square. The real challenge exists now because they're wading into the territory of policing speech. They all have terms and conditions. We all know we click on it and say, I agree to be bound by Facebook's terms and conditions in order to have an account. And that says that I can't post all these categories of speech on there. But there are people at these private companies that are making decisions about what what qualifies as hate speech or what qualifies as harassment or what qualifies as defamation. And they're calling balls and strikes on what content goes up or down. And those people are exercising that discretion in a way that is getting them in trouble and getting them a lot of public notice. But And, and this is where I think a lot of the confusion about First Amendment arises. None of that as a private business has anything to do with the First Amendment. You can regulate speech however you want as a private business, right? Absolutely. And uh, I think that's something that's very commonly understood. And a lot of the outrage that you hear from people, uh, including about sort of data privacy issues, is you don't have a constitutional right to have a Facebook account. You know, this is a private business that's providing a a service, albeit a very broad one. But if you're going to sign up for Facebook, if you're going to post things on Facebook, if you're going to participate in that, you're agreeing basically to a contract with these private companies and their uh, terms of service. So if anything, this is a monopolization issue. This isn't a First Amendment issue. And I'm not saying it is a monopoly, but right. I mean, I guess what I'm a little unclear on is uh, clearly the government's interested. <laughs> I oh, mean, they're, well, yeah. they're, they're holding hearings. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they're coming down on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, for not only allowing sort of controversial people that we often think of as hate speakers, but also for allowing all this kind of automated fake account activity, which uh, may have been the Russians or someone else trying to influence the elections. So the government's definitely interested in this issue. And, you know, possibly as they get more interested, 
then that government action perhaps does start to infringe the First Amendment. Well, you know, there are legitimate and illegitimate reasons to be interested in uh, social media. The accusations that Google or Facebook or other social media are biased against the right is something that personally I have a very hard time swallowing, in large part because it was used initially by the Reagan administration as an extremely effective argument. Because anything that is then critical, you can dismiss as, well, of course, what would you expect from the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, or other? We have to get to a point where we once again are uh, at least considering information that's not necessarily consistent with our preformed uh, arguments. And I think, you know, back in the 80s, Mark, uh, Mark Hartsgaard did a study of, in fact, this alleged left wing bias in media going back nearly 200 years and found it, in fact, not to be true. And I think we'll find the same thing today. But the challenge is are really fundamental, and that is a question I ask uh, often of myself is, does our Constitution, a living, breathing document, does it keep pace with technology, which is raising issues far beyond what we have the capacity certainly to legislate, but maybe even govern? Regulation of speech, there's another issue, and Thomas, you, Tom, you, you touched it briefly in your last answer, defamation. There are limitations on you know, Alex Jones' ability to talk about atomic pizza or somebody's ability to talk about something in a disparaging way, where are the limits? And that's not First Amendment. What What is that? So uh, the First Amendment does not protect defamatory speech. That's the legal issue there. But defamation is a very uh, defined class of speech. It's a false statement of fact about a person that is published to someone else that causes reputational harm and done with a certain culpable mindset meaning you, uh, under New York Times versus Sullivan, that you either knew it was false when you said it, or you recklessly disregarded the truth or falsity when you said it. So it's basically a, a lie that you told about somebody that you knew or should have known was false. Uh, I spend a lot of my practice when clients come to me and say, I've been defamed, explaining to them the same point that Richard made earlier. There's a big difference between defamation and speech you don't like. And I think for, for your audience and for this discussion, the one big divide that's important for people to understand is defamation only applies to false statements of fact. It does not apply to statements of opinion. You can make the most outrageous opinions that you want, publish them as broadly as you want, and have zero liability for defamation. But once you start making up facts about someone in order to support your argument, that's when you get into a situation where defamation is at play. You know, one thing, Jonathan, I would add, and it's, I think, important for us to remember, the First Amendment, as we interpret it today, is largely the evolution of an accidental train ride in a snowstorm a century ago between Justice Leonard Hand and Supreme Court Justice Frankfurter. And Leonard Hand at a lower court had a much more progressive view of the First Amendment. The First Amendment comes to us as we believe it today and accept it today, in large part because of the Wobblies, many of whom were beaten or killed in the early Union days, uh, anti-World War I protests, both of which were extremely unpopular speech. But it was through those unpo initially unpopular movements that led to our appreciation as the most important speech to protect is, in fact, the unpopular. One maybe counterpoint to that and to your point about whether the Constitution has really kept up with technology. It seems to me that it clearly hasn't. I mean, there's the ability now to create tens of millions of fake accounts putting out a particular viewpoint. 
And if you're just leaving it to the marketplace of ideas for that to balance out, it's no longer a fair competition. I mean, a real human being can't possibly speak out against 10 million bots right. <laughs> tweeting 500 times a day. And so that, for me, raises the question that you do need some legislation. You may need some government action and oversight. You know, that's kind of what where I'm struggling towards as well, uh, which is, it seems to me, we almost need to have, I don't know how you do it, but an objective truth police. Uh, you know, some sort of object, uh, defamation. Is, is, it, is it possible to have fraud on the marketplace of ideas? The show now being broadcast by George Orwell. It's so nice well, we're going to have... No, uh, but seriously, <laughs> I mean, how do you solve this problem without... Uh, when Monaghan, it was Monaghan used to say, we, you need to have a shared facts. You can't have facts without truth. But I think that, you know, uh, both gentlemen here uh, have addressed a critical issue, which is free speech does not attach to robotics, to the bots, and two, there are limits on speech. One of the things that, that I see and I've seen in my practice over the 20 years that I've been doing defamation work is this erosion of trust in the media. And it does, it's not just the professional media, but it's the erosion of trust in things people read online or hear on television. And I do believe that there is a correlation between that erosion of trust and the um, desire to make free speech um, consequence-free, that there's no consequence. The courts have, have spent a lot of time eroding accountability principles for speakers. And that is generally a good thing in a free society, that there isn't uh, severe consequences for people who utter speech. But given the fact that now there's more irresponsible speech, there's more falsehoods, there's more robotics out there, there's also courts have struggled to keep up with things like the internet and how do you deal with a hyperlink and how do you deal with a retweet? Um, what, what, how do these concepts apply in, in law that was crafted in the 1700s or the 1800s or the 1950s when a lot of this law came out? Um, I think that that is what has led to the erosion of trust in, in the media. Just one quick anecdote that I think would be interesting to your listeners. Um, a year ago, we were the counsel for um, a University of Virginia administrator in the Rolling Stone gang rape defamation case. It was one of the last defamation cases to go to trial. And we were picking a jury of 100 people in the, the room for the jury selection process. And we asked the question, how many of you distrust the media? 96 hands went up in the morning. 98 hands went up in the afternoon. And I think that is uh, something we see all around the country. And it's uh, a function, I think, of a lot of the um, the failures to keep up with the modern times. You know, I think to go back to the college campus issue, that to me is over-dependence on the media, 1960s kind of notion, Walter Cronkite delivers the truth to us. And I think that on the college campuses, and even in middle school, grade school, we need to teach our students and to relearn ourselves how we can be critical in terms of our analysis of this. And one doesn't have to just say, oh, the media is always right or they're always wrong. You should be able to impose your own standards on that, and that will hold them more accountable when they're wrong. I think that's a great place. Unfortunately, I have to end the conversation. Shauna, that was wonderful way to sum it up. I come away from this conversation a lot better informed about what the First Amendment is, but also realize the enormity of how we're going to deal with speech in the world that we now live in. Gentlemen, thank you very much. You're listening to Shan Wu, Tom Clare, and Richard Levick. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on What's Working in Washington. Thank you to Speakerbox Communications. 
SpeakerBox is your team for meeting the unique demands of the technology sector, crystallizing complex ideas, targeting highly intelligent buyers, and moving at the speed of tech. Since 1997, they've given voice to many of our industry's top thinkers and performers. Check them out at speakerboxpr.com. Now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. At the top of the headlines have been a wide variety of claims against company leaders and celebrities for sexual harassment in the workplace. Our commitment to respect, trust, diversity, and inclusion must be authentic, consistent, and in compliance with the law. But what does the law say about sexual harassment? There's a lot of confusion in the media and in how cases are reported. You should know that there's two very different types of sexual harassment claims under federal and state law. The first one is called quid pro quo. In a nutshell, that means in exchange for something. If a supervisor or company leader, manager, or owner asks an employee for a sexual favor of some sort, uh, or act of sexual conduct in exchange for a raise, a bonus, advancement, some type of treatment, that's per se illegal. That is an objective standard and can never be tolerated. The second type of sexual harassment is a sexually hostile environment. This is a much more subjective standard. This is around behaviors in the workplace and how someone feels in reaction to those behaviors. So you can imagine that with people of many different cultural and religious backgrounds and upbringings, this standard is harder to prove because it's much more subjective. It could be stories, water cooler conversations, jokes, posters, or art that make people feel uncomfortable. We're living in an era where training, awareness, and genuine leadership is critical to help navigate through these issues. Business owners and managers need to protect themselves against wrongful claims, but at the same time, be ready to hold those accountable for those who engage in illegal behaviors. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert, Andrew Sherman. And thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. And you've been listening to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. My producer is Tracy Madigan. And as you know, this show is about promoting why Washington, D.C. is a great place to do business and why it is a great place to be an entrepreneur and innovator. That's what this show, What's Working in Washington, is about. But it's only as good as you and your participation. So if you've got an idea for somebody that we should be talking with, let us know. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and let us know that there's a story out there that needs to be told. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Until next time, goodbye.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.